You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thanks, Terry. It's nice to be here. It's a nice crowd, and it's I really enjoyed those those two stories. It's a tough act to follow. I'm going to be reading from my novel, The Hollow Earth, um, which was reissued from Monkey Brain Press. I believe it was last year, so it's pretty easy to get hold of it right now. And this is a story about a boy called Mason Reynolds who runs away from his farm near a small town in Virginia and uh, ends up in Richmond and uh, he hooks up with Edgar Allan Poe. Flipping back to the front of the Southern Literary Messenger, that was a newspaper at the time, I noticed that their editorial offices were at 1501 Main Street, Richmond. Reading the editorial matter, which I normally skipped over, I learned something I hadn't realized before. Edgar Poe was now the messenger's editor. What luck. Edgar Poe would understand my predicament. He'd seen trouble himself. According to Judge Perrow, Poe had been kicked out of the university for gambling. I'd go and ask him for a job. I made it to 15th and Main without even having to get anyone's instructions. Like Edgar Poe says, man's highest ability is his power to ratiocinate. When I came to the appointed street corner, it was a quiet, dusty noon. A hog slept in a shallow wallow at one edge of the street. There were brick buildings all around. 1501's Main Street storefront held a shop selling jewelry and optical goods. A sign by the building's side entrance indicated that inside were the offices of the Southern Literary Messenger, T.W. White, proprietor. Though no man or woman was in sight, the door opened to my touch. I found myself in a large plank-floored room filled with ink-marked papers and printing equipment. The printing press dominated the room. It was a ponderous black iron machine, wonderfully scrolled and ornamented with powerful-looking screws and levers on every side. The far wall held a huge double door that I supposed gave onto a loading dock and an alley. Piled next to that door were stacks of newsprint and stacks of finished papers, issues of the May Southern Literary Messenger. The near wall, which ran along 15th Street, was lined with tables lit by large windows to the street. Dust motes jigged in the steep slanting light. It was so quiet that I could hear someone talking in the shop out front. Some of the tables held ragged edged printed sheets laid out for proofing and some were strewn with bits of metal, letters and punctuation marks. There were sticks and trays with letters lined up into mirror scents and pots of pitch for sticking the letters into place. A long low case resting on the table held store scores of small drawers, one drawer for each version of each letter. As no one was about, I pocketed three handsome italic letters, M, A, and R, my initials. To the left of the door I'd entered was a staircase with a pointing hand painted on the wall. I went up. Upstairs I found a large bright room with windows on two sides. 
There are masses of print stuffed into shelves and tottering in stacks, manuscripts, magazines, newspapers, and books. There is a single empty desk with a sign reading T.W. White, proprietor. Well-used sheets of flypaper hung from the ceiling. The whole building smelled of ink. Hello, I called presently. Is anyone here? I heard a dry, delicate cough. There was a small square office jutting out into the room's space from the right rear corner. The office door was half open, and on the door was written in gold leaf, Edgar Allan Poe, editor, allopathist, and poet, abandon all hope, ye shams who ram here. <laughs> I peered in. A young man lay easily stretched out on a Morocco divan. He looked up at me with no great interest. I assume you are Mr. Poe, said I. I am Mason Algiers Reynolds of Hardware, Virginia. He nodded very slightly. As this was of all men, the fantastic Edgar Poe, I could speak honestly. I've inadvertently killed my double, I told him. I'm a fugitive, and I stand in need of employ. He widened his eyes a bit, eyes that were deep pools of darkness, set beneath a high and somewhat too prominent brow. Should I forget everything else about Edgar Poe, I will never lose the image of his eyes. Poe's eyes seem to look in as well as out, at all times scrutinizing his mind's play of fantasies as keenly as the happenstances of the world without. His eyes were wondrous portals between two worlds. As for the rest of his face, he had a straight mouth, a pleasing aquiline nose, a small mustache and wavy dark hair, already a bit thin at the temples. But his eyes were everything. They were lamps to my soul's fluttering moth. What is your age, he said presently. His voice was low and clear, and as he spoke, the line of his mouth sketched a bewildering range of expressions from contempt to boredom to amusement to interest to genuine concern. And why do you speak of a double? I am 15, Mr. Poe. I say double because the boy I shot, purely by accident, mind you, was blonde like me and just my size. I feel terrible about it, and Sheriff Garmy wants me dead or alive. I was only getting Pa's whiskey money back from Mr. Sloat at the Liberty Hotel in Lynchburg. I was supposed to buy a wife for our slave Otha with the money, but one of Mr. Sloat's fancy women stole it from me. Whoring and killing at age 15, mused Poe. A lively lad. A Virginian. You have not brought your African to my office, I trust. No, sir. Otha took off on his own when we got to Richmond yesterday. I read your stories in The Messenger, Mr. Poe, and I like them enormously. I practically know Berenice and a, a manuscript found in a bottle by heart. I read and write better than anyone in hardware or even Lynchburg. Do you think I could have a job? Only you mustn't tell anyone else my real name. Call me Mason Bustler. Come in then, little brother. He made a rapid gesture with his delicate white hand and closed the door. I stepped into his office and closed the door behind me. Besides the divan, the office held bookshelves, two straight wooden chairs, and a desk piled high with papers. More books were stacked here and there on the floor. There was a window in the wall behind Mr. Poe's desk. I took one of the wooden chairs and sat down. I could help with the printing, I suggested. A very printer's devil, said Poe. Your name is Mason? Does your father adhere to the accepted lodge? The Freemasons? No, sir. We are Episcopalians. 
Ma's dead and Pa drinks. All I own is 50 cents and a pawn ticket for my pistol. You forget your bucolic health, said Poe with a smile, and the outsized raiment on your limbs. You've cast yourself adrift, Mason, and the tides of fate are sweeping you to sea. I know the feeling. I know it well. He paused and regarded me for a bit, his expression subtly changing with the rapid flow of his thought. I will help you, he said presently. Though first I must jot down my morning's musings. Today I've set aside my cursed book reviews to work on a new tale. Do you drink spirits? No, sir, I don't want to be like Pa. <laughs> Nor do I wish to be a wild-eyed slaving farmer, Mason. But today is the biblical Sabbath and Mr. White is in Petersburg. Allow me, as I say, to preserve the fruits of my interrupted labors, and then you and I shall off to the pothouse, young killer, young devil, young Mason Nay Reynolds, appelé bustler. Bustler, the name is the sound of an odious, sanctimonious fool. You would do better to keep your own name. I am close friends with one Jeremiah Reynolds, a brilliant man with a global mind. He will come here next week, perhaps to make my fortune. I have a wonderful plan for a trip of exploration. But now, silence. He swung his legs to the floor and moved nimbly to his desk. Taking pen in hand, he wrote rapidly for the better part of an hour. At no time during his steady penning did he so much as glance at me. Not wanting to disturb his labor, I passed the time by looking through the books stacked on the floor by my chair. I noticed a book of letters and recollections of the poet Coleridge, a pamphlet called South Sea Expedition by the Jeremiah Reynolds, whom Poe had just spoken of, also some travel books on Switzerland, Spain, and Pennsylvania, and at the bottom of the stack, a geographical treatise with the full title, Sims's Theory of Concentric Spheres, Demonstrating that the Earth is Hollow, Inhabitable Within, and Widely Open About the Poles, by a Citizen of the United States. It's a real book. <laughs> this odd treatise caught my fancy, and I delved into it. Sims's theory started out with a slew of prefaces, apologies, and advertisements to the effect that Captain John Cleve Sims, the Newton of the West, was a great genius whom the world did little appreciate. There was so much about Sims that I soon reached the conclusion that he himself had written the book. Once all the strutting and throat clearing was over, it turned out that Sims believed our planet is a huge hollow sphere with big open holds at the North and South Poles. According to Sims, each of these holds is some 4,000 miles across. Sims held that it should be possible for a ship to sail over the lip of one of these holds and onto the hollow Earth's inner surface. The inner surface was supposed to be covered with continents and oceans, just like the outside. Sims had some further theories about other hollow spheres concentric to the main one, but these extra spheres struck me as unnecessary garnishment to the inspired flapdoodle of his initial premise, <laughs> a hollow earth. The idea tickled me so much that I eagerly read further, forgetting all about Edgar Poe busy at his desk. Sims, or his mouthpiece, the citizen of the United States, had a list of reasons why our planet is in fact a hollow crust. Centrifugal force tends to squeeze all of a spinning planet's matter out into a spherical shell. If you put the end of a magnet up to a sheet of paper with iron filings, the filings will naturally arrange themselves into a hollow ring. Wheat stalks and birds' feathers are hollow. <laughs> Heavy mountains sit on top of light soil. <coughs> the material around Saturn arranges itself into rings. 
the poles of Mars look dark because the poles are actually great openings to the hollow inside. A correct interpretation of the Hebrew words theo and bio shows that instead of starting out, the earth was without form and void, the Bible actually reads, the earth was without form and hollow. <laughs> and finally, as a clincher to it all, it makes sense for the planets to be hollow because it displays a great saving of stuff. <laughs> a great saving of stuff. I liked Sims's thinking. I'd always had a yen <laughs> to explore. What an adventure it would be to discover a whole new world, the world <coughs> that lies inside. How would it feel to sail over that great thick lip to the interior? What could be the conditions inside the hollow earth? And why hadn't any travelers yet brought back reports of great continent-sized holes in the Arctic and Antarctic seas? The citizen of the United States had two answers. First of all, the Earth's magnetic field reverses direction on the inside, which means that along the great round verges of the holes, the field runs east-west, leading to a phenomenon that the citizen termed winding meridians. An explorer who tries to follow his compass towards the north or the south pole will inevitably end up sailing east or west along the rim of one of the great verges. And even if the explorer eschews compass measurements for the more reliable method of celestial navigation, his or her attempt to enter the hole will be gravely hampered by the great walls of ice that ring the holes both north and south. The battlements of these icy hoops have occasionally been sighted by storm-driven whalers and sealers, yet none that we know of has ever survived an attempt to venture beyond. Sims felt that the best way to reach the hollow earth would be to head north over the ice fields from the northernmost shores of Siberia. It is well, said Poe, breaking into my dreams of exploration. My hero is launched. I thirst and tremble. With bandy legs white from the scene, I shall dare the forbidden precincts of Hogg's Tavern. <laughs> Noticing the book I held, he smiled broadly. How do you like Sims's theory, Mason? He is a madder, drunken farmer than your pa. <laughs> that was typical of Eddie Poe, I would learn. Typical of him to fasten on some one little thing you told him and to come back to it over and over. I was in no position to stick up for pa right then, so I ignored the slight and spoke to his question. I wonder what it would be, be like inside the hollow earth. Do you think there might be a sun on the inside? A sun. Interesting notion. While he spoke, Poe busied himself rolling his fresh-written sheets up into a scroll that he bound with a ribbon. I had Sims's theory in mind when I wrote my MS found in a bottle. Of course, there, to end the thing, I filled the hole with a great black maelstrom. Have you ever seen a maelstrom? <laughs> he stared at me with his dark eyes. A giant whirlpool? No, though there were plenty of little eddies in the James coming down. I rode here on a flatboat with a crew of slaves. Did you converse with them? Of course. You should hear the stories they tell around the fire at night, Mr. Poe. Some of the tales go right back to Africa. Never mind Pa and the slaves, said Poe. And don't call me Mr. Poe, little brother. Call me Eddie. I'm no Mr. Such-and-so. I'm an international genius of 25. We headed out of the office with Eddie going back twice to make sure he'd fastened the locks. Outside, we crossed Main Street, Caddy Corner to Hogg's Tavern. I spent the night at the Swan, I told Eddie as we went in. Maybe we should go there and see if they can, and if they see me with someone as important as you, they'll give me credit. Eddie was very cheerful now, and this supposition of mine made him shake with laughter. 
Do you think writers are wealthy men, Mason? <laughs> Pillars of society? I am penniless, though I despise to remain so. He said the last se sentence in a whisper, as now we were in Hogg's Tavern. The place was nearly empty. Eddie made a commanding gesture and addressed the publican. Ho, Hogg, two twists of tobacco, if you please. Eddie examined his tobacco briefly, then placed it back on the counter. I don't much like this tobacco, Hogg. Bring us rum and water in its stead. We found seats on a bench by the wall. The bench had horsehair cushions. It was nice being there. Hogg brought us a pitcher of water and a noggin of rum with two glasses. When Eddie lifted the noggin, I put my hand over my glass. Please, I told him, no strong drink for me. I've tried my fill of Pa's whiskey a few times, and I don't like it. It makes me dizzy and sick. Lucky lad, said Eddie. Pedestrian, carking, farmer. <laughs> you talk then while I imbibe. Tell me your misadventure in dramatic detail. I told him the whole story of how I'd left the farm, made a mess in Lynchburg, and fled to Richmond. He was particularly taken by the fact that I still dreamed of the dead stable boy. Eddie's behavior changed noticeably with each of the four toddies of rum that the noggin held. During the first drink, he remained cheerful and cutting. With the second glass, he became deep and thoughtful. With the third glass, he grew fluttery and maudlin. And the fourth glass started him to speechifying on Sims's hollow earth theory. With his tongue loosened by the rum, Eddie freely confessed that he believed in Sims's theory from the bottom of his heart. Just last month, Eddie's friend Jeremiah Reynolds had delivered a speech to Congress in favor of a United States exploring expedition to the South Polar regions. Although Reynolds had once been a follower of Sims, he dared not speak to Congress of the Hollow Earth. Instead, he had urged polar exploration for such petty, put-up reasons as better trade and better maps. Eddie was disappointed that Reynolds had missed his opportunity to lecture Congress about the Hollow Earth. <laughs> and the fair go he now poured out to me was what he, Edgar Allan Poe, felt Jeremiah Reynolds should have said. Eddie's reasons for believing the theory were not scientific at all. His reasons for belief had to do with what he termed poetic necessity. The womb and the skull, he intoned, sitting up straight and <laughs> wagging his finger at me. The womb, the skull, and the hollow earth. If a man's head be but a ball of empty bone, why not our world as well? And what is the womb but a cave of muscle and sinew? Is it not fitting that Farmer Sims makes our verdant orb a grinning memento mori? But who or what has eaten the moist brain or fetus that nestled once within? <laughs> Some hero must drive to the pole and seek out the worm that slumbers not. It may be, young Mason, that you are the one to carry it through. His dark eyes were magnetically fist, fixed on me. Their depths swung like whirlpools. A moment passed. Eddie blinked and poured out the rest of the noggin. Only, <coughs> only a few drops were left. The great wall of ice is the final barrier between us and the southern pole. Like a virtuous woman, Earth hides her nether mystery beneath a chaste and frozen corset. The frozen hoop lies between us and the whole basin. But is this not the age of aeronautics? Cannot a ballooning flight of fancy overspring this most beetling wall? I've written Reynolds all this, and next Saturday he comes to realize my plan. Some call me hoaxer, but I am, in my way, a man of science. Only science can save me from the melancholy similes which crowd my brain. He gazed gloomily at his last bit of rum. 
Foul, sighed Eddie then. Birth and death are both foul beyond imagining. To be sealed up into the flesh of another, to be nailed into a box, I suffocate. I must have air. Draining the last of the rum, he started to his feet and tottered towards the tavern door with me dogging his steps. Sirs, called Hogg, I believe you have forgotten to pay for your rum and water. Pay for my rum and water, exclaimed Poe, his mouth set into a hard line of anger. All at once his fooling was quite steady. Didn't I give you the tobacco for the rum and water? What more do you require? But, sir, said Hogg, looking a bit uncertain, I don't remember that you paid for the tobacco. <laughs> what do you mean by that, you scoundrel? Isn't that your tobacco lying there? Am I supposed to pay for what I did not take? But, sir, save your snares for the unwary, snapped Eddie, and marched out into the street. He hurried off down the block so rapidly that I could barely keep up with him. His shoulders were shaking. When I finally fell into step with him, I saw that he was chuckling and talking to himself. A most excellent diddle, he muttered. Most capital diddle indeed. It is well that watchful white postponed my first visit to Hogg. Today I wear the diddler's grin. He spread his lips wide in an unnatural leer and turned his head to stare at me. I was confused. I, you didn't, I mean, Hogg was right. You owe him for the rum. The tobacco doesn't have anything to do with it. The tobacco has everything to do with it. Mason, as surely as a magician's hat, has everything to do with his hairs. Am I not penniless? Yet do I not thirst? I work, I am penniless, I thirst, ergo it is my right to diddle hog. <laughs> Fix your mind on the first two premises of the syllogism. I work, I am penniless. Mr. White's magazine, Mason, the magazine where you seek employ, this same Southern literary messenger began with a circulation of 500 and under my editorial hand has risen to a, risen to a circulation of 2,000. Yet I am penniless. My best energies are wasted in the service of an illiterate and vulgar man who has neither the capacity to appreciate my labors nor the will to reward them. I wander drunk in the streets of Pawkey Richmond with none but a 15-year-old farm boy to witness my degradation. And I think I'll stop there. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.